This is Due South, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Leonida Inge. When we think of the civil rights movement, the names of a dozen or more prominent figures come to mind, from Fannie Lou Hamer to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We often think of the movement in terms of its orators or those whose protests made their way into our history books. But little is known about the people who financed those protests and sponsored the work of those orators. Fundraising was essential to the work of the movement, but the names of the most successful fundraisers have been lost to history until now. With the publication of her new book, our guest, Tanisha C. Ford, lifts the veil on the lavish lifestyle of Molly Moon, the New York social worker and socialite who founded the fundraising arm of the National Urban League in 1942. Tanisha is an award-winning historian, cultural theorist, and author of the new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. Tanisha, welcome to Do South. Thanks for having me. You know, we're a show about the American South, so it's only fitting that we sort of begin with a question about Molly Moon's ties to the South. Now, she's best known, you know, as a New Yorker, but New York is a far cry from where she started out. Tell me about how she grew up. Molly Moon was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 1907. She was born into a family that was working class, that had a big emphasis on education. Um, at that time period when Molly was, uh, her mother would have been coming of age, you at least went to school until eighth grade, but her mother had to leave school once she became pregnant with Molly and got married. But she really pressed it upon Molly that she would finish high school and then also go on to college. And that's exactly what she did. She also attended college in the South at Meharry Medical School where she earned a degree in pharmacy. You know, so in a way, even though she, I guess her childhood was sort of marked by a lot of financial insecurity, she sort of dug her way and, you know, her smarts made her way to the middle class in many ways when it comes to, you know, Black families during that time. Most certainly. And I think that was one of the reasons why her mother made the difficult decision to leave family in Hattiesburg and move Molly to the Midwest to Cleveland, where they were part of that wave of Black migrants who were moving north. And then once Molly became an adolescent, then that's when they returned to the South. And Molly attended Rust, uh, Rust College's secondary school, their high school, and where she was able to graduate before then going on to Meharry. So a lot of her core educational preparation took place in the South. And so after Molly graduates from college, she and her first husband moved to New Orleans, where they own a local pharmacy. But Molly becomes disenchanted with many of the trappings of the Black elite in New Orleans, and she ends up fleeing the South um, and her, her tattered marriage for Harlem. And she lands in Harlem during the height of the Harlem Renaissance. Sort of, you know, Molly was sort of like, fake it till you make it. You know, her, how she grew up, like she always wanted to like be somebody. Maybe that's why she worked hard, married more than once. What made her become a fundraiser? I definitely agree that Molly Moon was a self-actualizer, right? To use our our self-help guru language of Mm -hmm. today. I mean, she was someone who made herself. She had dreams and visions for herself that in many ways extended beyond the limitations that Black women in this era in America experienced. She 
first, um, after she comes to Harlem, she forms relationships with people like Langston Hughes, Dorothy West, Zora Neale Hurston, Louise Thompson Patterson. And they are a cohort of people who end up going over to the USSR and later to, to Berlin. And it's those international experiences that shape Molly's thinking around racial equality and economic justice. But it isn't until she partners with Lester Granger, who becomes the executive director of the National Urban League, that she really starts to hone her skills as a fundraiser. Once Granger taps her to develop the fundraising wing of the National Urban League, which she named the National Urban League Guild, Molly is then able to step into a much larger spotlight and expand her her network of donors who are contributing to the movement. So some of her first initiatives are using the arts to support the civil rights movement. One thing about the the Guild, the National Urban League Guild, you know, she helped, I think, establish those all over, didn't she, including the South? Most certainly. There was a Guild movement that really flourished after World War II. So as you mentioned, she establishes the first Guild in New York City in 1942. And I think at that time, there was an idea that that would become like the central guild that supported the national headquarters of the, the National Urban League. But once the guild started to expand, as did the National Urban League itself, they established guild chapters all across the country. I mean, anywhere that there was a hub of Black people, and of course, this is during the second wave of the Great Migration, there was a guild chapter. I want to backtrack a little bit to, I guess, her third husband, Henry Lee Moon. He was a civil rights figure. So I wonder if that helped, you know, push her into the movement as well. Henry was her third husband, her third and final husband. Mm -hmm. And he was her true partner. And I think they influenced one another. I mean, through their rich correspondence, which I was able to spend just, you know, years going through and reading word for word, it was very clear to me that Henry, who by this point, he wasn't active in the NAACP in the ways that he would become, but he was a leading public intellectual in the United States, writing about issues related to lynching and housing inequality and so forth. Once he loses his job in, in journalism, he then finds work in the federal government. And so the two of them have a shared vision for Black liberation, for Black freedom, and they understand that, you know, social engagement, civic engagement is a crucial part of that. And they reinforce one another's vision for social change. So Molly becomes the head of the Guild before Henry Lee Moon accepts the position as publicity director of the NAACP. They work together tirelessly to fight for change in the Black community, even though both of them have really fallen to the margins of the histories of their respective organizations. Yeah, they had it pretty locked down, the NAACP and the Urban League. (laughs) You know, um, Molly Moon, there was a little scandal about her. Was that an affair with a Rockefeller, or was that just rumor? Well, there's definitely rumors of an affair (laughs) with the Rockefeller. And as a historian, I mean, I was less interested in understanding, like, did this affair actually happen? And more so understanding the whys around this. You know, by this point, it's the late 1940s. The National Urban League is expanding. The Guild itself is expanding. Molly Moon is is collecting monies from 
the most elite and wealthy families in New York City and beyond. She's also mobilizing domestic laborers, subway workers, et cetera, in the New York community, understanding that even small dollar donations help to contribute to the movement. And Winthrop Rockefeller becomes a partner in that endeavor. He is a major supporter of the National Urban League and of the Rockefellers. He's the most outspoken as it relates to civil rights initiatives in this moment. And the two work very closely. They're photographed together constantly. Mm. They put their names on an event as co-hosts of this event that's held at the Rockefeller Rainbow Room in Midtown Manhattan. And so many people start to speculate, well, why would this wealthy white man want to work so closely with a Black woman if they were not, in fact, having an affair? So it just helped to spark this rumor that the only way that Molly Moon can get these things done is if she does so through extramarital uh, relationships. And I I try to, you know, really help readers understand why this is a, a form of massage noir to, to frame Molly Moon even within this context and how that did in many ways plant a seed around her sexuality, around her, her, um, her reputation as a fundraiser. But despite many of these challenges and the ways that the media of the day speculated about the nature of her relationship with uh, Winthrop Rockefeller, she remained committed to the movement. She remained committed to fundraising and by all accounts seemed rather undaunted by it all. I think on some level she she thought that this was the price of celebrity, right? It was the price of being a celebrity fundraiser, you know, having people spill salacious gossip about you in the press. You know, I, I, I can definitely understand and see that when you think about those times because, you know, there's a long thread of sexism like in, in your book, particularly, you know, about the way she was covered by the media. I can't—we know how they cover women in the media today. I can't imagine how she was um, she was covered back then for all, all that she was involved with. For, for sure. It was a, a toxic blend of racism, sexism, fat phobia, et cetera, that really came together to— you know, in some ways, paint a damning picture of her. But fortunately, she also had a lot of supporters within the Black press. You know, at this point, at the height of the Black press, I mean, there were hundreds of Black newspapers across the country. She had reporters and society editors who were very supportive of the work that she was doing. So when you look at the Molly Moon newspaper, you know, archive, if you will, you see a blend of some of these, you know, negative stories, but really an overwhelming body of positive stories around her and the amazing work that she was doing for the League. I know I've read about um, what, say, Lorraine Hansberry, you know, the great playwright, and and many, you know, that were part of the Harlem Renaissance in that era who were funding projects back down South, you know. And I wonder, like, what kind of money are we talking about that Molly Moon was able to raise you know, we know she was good at it, but I, I wonder in today, in, I don't know if you can say in today's dollars, but even back then, like what kind of money were we talking about? Yeah, in today's dollars, she raised roughly $6 million for the National Urban League through the Guild. And in some ways, that seems like an impressive figure, and perhaps in other ways it doesn't. But the reason to me it's impressive is that the bulk of her fundraising, she's doing this work in the Jim Crow era. Oftentimes when these major foundations and corporations gave money to the National Urban League, they did so with restrictions where the money could only go to certain endeavors. For example, 
these organizations were very um, keen to support voter registration drives and initiatives. They were also deeply invested in in programs to um, support Black youth because those things seem safe and apolitical or at least, you know, bipartisan. Um, But they wouldn't necessarily support the initiatives that would end mass poverty Mm -hmm. in Black and brown communities, right? So Molly Moon, the money that she's giving without restrictions will go toward more of those grassroots initiatives, things that were definitely needed in the community and that the Urban League was uniquely positioned to provide for Black communities across the South. And this money became even more important after Brown v. Board, um, that decision, because in the South, white citizens councils then attacked um, financially, if you will, the National Urban League affiliates and um, and NAACP affiliates across the South by, you know, strangulating the amount of money that could flow into those organizations. Well, how do we make Molly Moon a household name? Are you optimistic, you know, that um, all of your um, all of your work will do that? I had never heard of Molly Moon, but yeah, she's on she's on my list now. Oh, wonderful. I love hearing that. Yes, it is my goal to make her a household name. I mean, we need to know her name not just because she was an extraordinary woman, but because she is our window into a lost piece of American history. We really have to think about the true cost of racial justice. And if we if we had to really truly examine how much money, and in this, this moment, I mean, we've raised into the billions to fund something like the right to vote for African-Americans, to secure that basic civil rights. African-Americans have raised at least a billion dollars to do so. If we really had to stare those figures in the face, then it would make us have more complex conversations about democracy. And what do we even mean when we say that? So Molly Moon, she is, again, a, a guiding light for us who helps us understand something more about ourselves. She shines light on the dark parts of our history that maybe we don't want to tackle. And she also allows us to imagine Black joy in new ways and the importance of a good party and the ways that she used her Bowls Arts Ball, her annual fundraiser, to bring everybody from, you know, domestic laborers to Vanderbilts and Rockefellers into one room, you know, to raise money for racial justice. So she's she's just such an important name. And I want us to be able to think about her alongside figures like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Ella Baker. I mean, she's definitely their peer um, in many ways, and we need to know her. Well, before we go, you know, Molly's that flagship event is at the Bow Arts Ball. You include some vivid descriptions of that event in your book. I would really love for you to to describe it here. I loved piecing together the history of the Bow Arts Ball. This ball pulled together traditions from West Indian Carnival celebrations, and in that way, it was a costumed affair. It also drew from drag balls, which were possible which were popular in Harlem in the 1920s and 30s. So it was an event that was supposed to be lavish and over the top in terms of the costumes. And the costumes became an equalizer in terms of race and class. So you could come decked out in your costume. And I have some vivid pictures of costumes from these early balls in the book, which I can't wait for people to see. 
Uh, so you could see how people came adorned. And she even used this within the fundraiser. You know, you could compete in the costume parade and, and win a prize if you were awarded the best costume of the night. As it was the like the Met, ball became like the Met Gala before the Met Gala. <laughs> I mean, I think that's definitely a way to look at it because it was most certainly an elite social event mm. in New York. And when I say elite, I don't mean in the sense that it was exclusionary, because again, the whole point was to bring a cross section of people from New York communities together in one room. But it was elite in that it was massively popular. It was the place to be. It received tons of media coverage. And, you know, the who's who of the New York metro area came to this ball every year. By the time we got to the 1960s and 70s, politicians knew they had to show up. They wanted to be photographed, shaking hands with Molly Moon because they wanted her stamp of approval. They wanted their constituents to see that they had Molly Moon's approval. I know you you are an award-winning historian, and so you do know how to research, but you did a few things different this time for this book. I did. I had to because, first of all, once I realized that most of Molly Moon's events were fundraisers, I thought, wow, I am a civil rights movement historian. There should be some pictures. I have, <laughs> I have realized that I don't know, didn't know enough about fundraising in the movement. So I had to first ask myself as a historian, why? Why was there this lack of knowledge, a lack of historical coverage of this topic? And then I had to figure out, well, how then do I feel, fill that hole? How then do I you know, piece together that history? Thank goodness Molly Moon kept an archive that was deposited at the Schomburg Center, and I was able to use her personal papers to piece together that history. And I realized that once you start to look at the newspapers and the Black press, um, and even the mainstream press, money is all over the archive. It's just that we as historians weren't writing about it, mm -hmm. you know, as it related to the movement. So then once I was able to have that focus on fundraising, I could see the numbers just jumping out at me. Another piece of this was to trace down like the, the material culture history here. What kind of hotels and other venues was she hosting these events at? What kind of food was being served? What was on the menus? You know, all this kind of history became part of it. And I even put together a, a recipe book that's on, on my website, OurSecretSocietyBook.com, of many of the recipes that I found in Molly Moon's papers and the newspapers from that time period. So people in their own homes can, you know, make the food that Molly Moon made um, at her parties at home and, you know, that were served at these big galas. But it was piecing together all of those elements and then interviewing people who work in the nonprofit and philanthropy space today to try to understand the role of major fundraisers. What do they do? How do they do that work? It was a lot of you know research into the economics of the mid-20th century, reading white papers and sociological studies, census data about Black people and wealth and the impact of the racial wealth gap. So it was just a sweeping um, research process that involved me, you know, really fine tuning my method of eclectic archiving to help the story come to life. Well, I definitely appreciate that method. Um, it's definitely the book is a is a looker. I love the photographs. Um, thank you, Tanisha C. Ford, for all of your work and this new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.